I'm Roddy Brett. We are sitting in the University of St Andrews, which is in Fife on the Scottish coast. I direct the Centre of Peace and Conflict Studies. I work principally on issues of political violence, peace processes, and my focus has tended to be in Latin America. Prior to being here at the University of St Andrews, I spent around four and a half years living in Colombia, and previous to that, around eight years living in Guatemala. I was part of the original team that put together the investigation against Guatemala's former dictator, Efrain Rios Montt, who was dictator between 1982 and 1983, and his military high command. The investigation was ultimately to present charges of genocide and crimes against humanity. I left Guatemala in 2008, and in 2009, I went to Colombia to work as a professor in one of the universities out there, again, working on these issues of political violence, peace building. I also spent around a year working for the United Nations Development Programme as advisor to the UNDP on issues of peace and conflict, based in Bogota, but traveling quite extensively to the conflict-affected regions. Today, I'm going to talk about Colombia's armed conflict, part of which was brought to an end in 2016 as a result of the peace process between the Colombian government under President Juan Manuel Santos and Colombia's armed guerrilla group, the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, the FARC-EP. I will talk about how that process came about, how it came to an end in November 2016 when the final peace package was ratified by the Colombian Congress and what the Colombian peace process with the FARC-EP signifies for the future of Colombia. If you hear footsteps going past, it's students running to class or running away from class. Colombia is on the northernmost tip of South America. It's the US's most important ally in the region. It borders Ecuador, Peru, Brazil, Venezuela and Panama. You have the Pacific Ocean on one coast, the Caribbean Sea on another coast, the Amazon River. Colombia's population is around 3 to 5% indigenous. And that indigenous population controls around 20 to 25% of Colombia's enormous territory. Culturally, it's a country that's incredibly diverse in terms of music. When you talk about the Caribbean, or think about Vallenato or Cumbia in terms of food, in terms of poetry, literature, of course, Gabriel García Márquez. The majority language is Spanish, but around 15% of Colombia's population define themselves as Afro-Colombian. When we talk of Colombia, we think of football, of coffee. Very often we'll think of Pablo Escobar and drug trafficking and cocaine. But of course, Colombia is far more than that. It's not the country that you're presented with when you watch the program Narcos, for example. The roots of Colombia's armed conflict stretch back into the 19th century, beginning with the internecine conflict between the conservatives and the liberals, Colombia was a two-party political system. This violence between conservatives and liberals was rife throughout urban, semi-rural and rural areas. It culminated in the so-called La Violencia, the violence, that began in 1948 on the 9th of April with the assassination of the Liberal Party leader Jorge Gaitán from 1958 until 1974. So 16 years you have a period during which time the so-called National Front government assumes power. This is a power-sharing agreement between the Liberal Party and the Conservative Party that alternate power. 
It's really within this context that Colombia's armed conflict begins, because the National Front, whilst permitting the alternation of power between the two principal political parties, excludes other political parties. As with many other countries in the region, Colombia's revolutionary movements emerge out of rural Colombia. What drove Colombians, and particularly Colombian peasants, to form revolutionary armed groups was on the one hand the closure of the political system to alternative ideologies, and on the other hand, exclusion, poverty, inequality, and of course, unequal land distribution and tenure. What was also key was the lack of a functioning state apparatus throughout much of Colombia. The state apparatus had been principally based within urban Colombia and did not reach rural Colombia to the extent to which it was able to provide public services, protection, and all of the key things that we associate with a functioning state apparatus. In 1964, the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia is formed, the FARC, EP, as is the National Liberation Army, the ELN, Colombia's other long-standing revolutionary group. The FARC, EP, and the ELN were embedded within the region's Cold War struggles. Latin America was a battleground for the Cold War, where many proxy wars took place that were funded by the USA and, to a certain degree, by the Soviet Union. So Nicaragua, all of Central America, in fact, Latin America's southern cone dictatorships, Argentina, Chile, Uruguay, Paraguay. Whilst the Cold War provided the context, it's a mistake to presume that the prolonged political violence in Latin America was only about the Cold War. It clearly was not. Much of that political violence carried out principally by states, but of course as well by insurgent organisations and paramilitary organisations, was a response to increasing democratisation in Latin America during the 1940s and early 1950s. The rise of left-wing political parties, the growing power of trade union movements, so a little bit about the FARC. The FARC is one of the world's oldest and largest guerrilla organisations. Its armed struggle lasted from 1964 to 2016, so 52 years. The organisation is formed from predominantly rural populations struggling for political and economic inclusion. By the 1980s, the organisation begins to consolidate itself as an armed organisation and to develop what it called a strategy of all forms of struggle, political and military at the same time. This strategy has a great deal of a success, and by the end of the 1980s, the FARC has been able to consolidate its rural support base. One of the key driving forces in the Colombian conflict is the lack of a functioning state apparatus, particularly in rural and semi-rural zones. What the FARC was able to do was to move into this vacuum, nominally providing security, education, health, the reasons why rural populations collaborated with or joined the FARC were complex. Many excluded rural populations felt that the FARC gave them a voice, that the FARC was a realistic option for them, given that they had never received benefits from the state, that they had been excluded politically and economically. However, there was also coercion of rural populations by the guerrilla group to force populations to collaborate with them. One example is the case of a woman who was born in Tolima, a rural region of the country where the FARC had its origins. This woman was born to a very poor peasant family who had a very small amount of land. The woman's father died when she was very young. She grew up with her mother and her mother's husbands. 
Both her mother and her first husband beat her consistently. She was raped by one of her uncles constantly. She began to hang out outside of her house and to talk to some of the FARC guerrilla who would stray down from the mountains into her village. It was the FARC combatants who were really the only people who were decent to her, respected her. The young woman was in a public place with some FARC combatants. Her mother came along, threatened her, began to beat her, and the FARC came to her defence. It's at this point that this young woman takes the decision to integrate into the FARC as a combatant. By the end of the 1980s, the political and economic elite clearly see the FARC as a meaningful threat to its survival. The end of the 1980s is also the end of the Cold War. Support from the former Soviet Union is no longer there to the extent that it had been. So the FARC begins to seek alternative sources of finance, kidnapping wealthy Colombians, production of coca, drug trafficking, taxing peasant farmers, which leads to the Colombian population's deep questioning of the FARC's ideological and political commitments as an armed revolutionary organisation. In response to the FARC's increasing military strength, paramilitary organisations begin to emerge throughout the country. By 1997, the different paramilitary forces unify in the AUC, the United Defence Forces of Colombia. And it's at this point Colombia's armed conflict takes an extremely bloody turn. The paramilitaries begin to combat the FARC throughout the country, particularly on the Caribbean coast and the Pacific coast and in other rural zones of the country, using tactics such as massacre, torture, disappearance. The FARC is weakened and it's at this point that the government decides to negotiate with the guerrilla. So between 1999 and 2002, we have the Caguan peace negotiations. The negotiations were unsuccessful for two reasons. Firstly, because the government itself wasn't united in terms of its vision for peace. Part of the government wanted to continue to wage war. Another part of the government, headed up by the president, wanted to bring peace by political means. On the other hand, the FARC was also not necessarily serious as regards negotiating peace and demobilizing. There are accusations that the FARC used the Caguan peace negotiations to reorganize and rearm itself. The failure of the Caguan peace process is significant because it permitted then-presidential candidate Álvaro Uribe to contest the 2002 elections on a platform of all-out war against the FARC. Uribe wins the 2002 presidential elections. He immediately initiates what's called the democratic security policy. The democratic security policy has a twofold objective. On the one hand, to defeat the FARC through military means, and on the other hand, to consolidate the state within rural parts of the countryside. Uribe is able to take advantage of the so-called Plan Colombia. Plan Colombia, negotiated under the previous president, had been approved by the US Congress as an enormous military and financial package to support counter-narcotics programs and strategies in Colombia. Uribe takes the war to the FARC, utilising the military, but also significantly paramilitary forces that were trained, armed, and often financed by the armed forces themselves. Plan Colombia began to drive Uribe's counterinsurgency against the FARC. And once again, the FARC is pushed back to peripheral zones of the country. Uribe is re-elected in 2006, having successfully petitioned for a reform to the Colombian constitution to permit a president to run for a second term. 
and continues with his so-called democratic security policy. Uribe's counterinsurgency brought significant success. It brought the killing of high-level FARC leaders, it pushed the guerrilla back to peripheral zones of the country, and it weakened the guerrilla's general capacity, forcing many of the combatants to demobilise. Uribe relied on paramilitary forces to cleanse and sweep areas of FARC control and support, which culminated in a massive tally of victims of homicide, massacre, disappearance and forced displacement. Although the paramilitaries eventually demobilised between 2005 and 2007, this demobilisation was an irredeemable failure. Of the 32,000 or so paramilitaries that demobilised, only around 4,000 went formally into government programmes. What's happened since has been a revitalisation, if you like, through what the United Nations defines as neo-paramilitary forces. Since 2012, the neo-paramilitary forces have become key spoilers to the peace process, indicated as the actor responsible for the killing of human rights activists, land activists and pro-peace activists. Over 100 activists were killed in 2017. By the end of Uribe's second term in 2010, the FARC had been cornered to a certain degree, although certainly not defeated and had begun to wage once more an irregular war against the military. President Uribe was unable to stand for a third term. His petition to reform the constitution to allow him to do so was rejected. And so Uribe delegated his Minister of Defence, Juan Manuel Santos, as his heir. In a massive victory in 2010, Juan Manuel Santos was elected. Everybody was expecting that Santos would continue Uribe's policies of all-out war against the FARC. You can imagine the surprise then when in his inauguration speech, Santos states that he's not opposed to negotiating with the FARC and in fact, the keys to peace are in his pocket. Through a four-year peace process, the war with the FARC is finally put to an end, although the other significant guerrilla insurgency, the ELN, the Army of National Liberation, continues to this day despite intermittent ceasefires and negotiations with the Santos government. So how was Santos able to negotiate successfully with the FARC guerrilla where many other presidents and governments had failed in the past, for example in the Caguan negotiations between 1999 and 2002? One of the key factors that differentiates the Santos-FARC negotiations is the context of hurting stalemate. In other words, although the government and the military had been able to inflict significant wounds upon the guerrilla, pushing it yet further into the peripheral parts of Colombia, the rural zones, the military hadn't been able to defeat the guerrilla. Whilst the FARC had been able to sustain its war despite the onslaught from the technically superior military, it hadn't been able to overthrow the state. So by 2010, both sides are weary of war. Another point is Latin America's regional context. For the past decade, left-wing governments had been elected to power in the region, Uruguay, Chile, Argentina, Nicaragua, El Salvador, to name a few. And amongst those elected governments, you also had former guerrillas, Nicaragua, El Salvador, Uruguay. So the context began to push the FARC to reflect upon the fact that their war was anachronistic. Fidel Castro himself stated at the very beginning of the peace process with the FARC, 
that revolutionary armed conflict and revolutionary struggle were anachronistic. At the same time, you have the personality of Juan Manuel Santos. Santos is a member of Colombia's oligarchy. He comes from one of the country's most well-known and oldest families. He's respected by the military because he's been Minister of Defence. The political and economic elite, as well as the military, feel they're not going to be betrayed by Santos. However, Santos makes a very telling statement at the beginning of the peace process. When asked about how he wants to go down in history, Santos refers to the autobiography of Roosevelt, the traitor to my class, and states that he would be happy to go down in history as a traitor to his class for bringing Colombia's armed conflict to an end. So how does the peace process begin? Well, as has been the case in many other armed conflicts, negotiations between the FARC guerrilla and Santos's government begin behind closed doors. There are secret talks initially in Venezuela and subsequently in Cuba. In August 2012, Santos makes a public declaration that he and his government will negotiate with the FARC guerrilla. The negotiations take place in Cuba, in Havana. Cuba had been selected as the location for the negotiations because of the Cuban government's sympathy towards the guerrilla. The Cuban government has also had a very important history of mediation in the Latin American region and elsewhere. Two countries were chosen to guarantee the peace process, Cuba being one, Norway being the other. Norway has a very long history of mediating in national and international conflicts, often very successfully. Two other countries were chosen to accompany the peace process. Chile, a country known to be centre-right politically, perhaps chosen because of the affinities between the Santos government and the Chilean government, and Venezuela. Now, what's significant about Venezuela's being included as an accompany a country is the fact that during Uribe's two presidential terms, diplomatic relations between Colombia and Venezuela were at best strained. Uribe and Chavez, president at the time, had a very explosive relationship. Uribe constantly accusing Chavez of wanting to turn Latin America into Cuba, and Chavez very often accusing Uribe of being the United States lapdog in the region. However, a masterstroke by Santos when he became president was to re-establish diplomatic relations with Chavez. Santos did something similar with Ecuador. One of the key successes, if you want to call it that, of Uribe's counterinsurgency was to bomb a FARC encampment over the border in Ecuador. Of course, contravening international humanitarian law. So again, relations between Colombia and Ecuador were deeply strained for a very long period of time whilst Uribe was in government. Santos held out an olive branch to President Correa and re-established diplomatic relations with Ecuador. Santos had re-established diplomatic relations with the two governments that were most sympathetic to the FARC in the region. And that was deeply significant in generating trust between the Santos government and the FARC guerrilla. The Santos government imposed a series of caveats on the peace process. Firstly, negotiations would take place without a ceasefire. This permitted the government to negotiate on the one hand, whilst at the same time continuing its military war against the FARC guerrilla. Secondly, the negotiations were only charged with putting an end to Colombia's armed conflict. The negotiations were not expected to address the fundamental structural causes of Colombia's protracted political violence. The aim here was to lower expectations in terms of what the negotiations would be able to produce. 
Thirdly, nothing would be agreed until everything was agreed. In other words, the peace accords would not be implemented until the final accord was signed. And finally, Santos made it clear on a series of occasions that the negotiations were not about seeking to transform the country's political and economic model. This was to reassure the economic elite, but also to counter claims from Oribe and his political supporters that Santos was seeking to transform the country into Cuba. In fact, to legitimise negotiations, Santos and the negotiating team drew on reports from a series of think tanks that if and when the Colombian conflict would end, it would be likely that the country's GDP would increase by 3%, because putting an end to the conflict would permit the government to access resource-rich zones that had previously been either under FARC control or in the midst of the armed conflict. Colombia is rich in oils, minerals and gemstones. Santos was explicit about the fact that an end to the conflict would permit, as he termed it, democratic prosperity for all. Over the course of four years, the Santos government and the FARC guerrilla negotiated five agenda points, culminating in five specific peace accords. An agreement linked to the agrarian and rural situation, an agreement linked to political participation, two of the key causes of Colombia's armed conflict in the first place, a third agreement relating to illicit drugs, a fourth agreement relating to victims and issues of transitional justice, and finally, a fifth agreement that brought an end to the conflict itself. In September 2016, the parties to negotiation signed the final peace agreement in Cartagena, Colombia, amidst an enormous degree of fanfare and, of course, also excitement. However, this wasn't the end of the story. A week later, on the 2nd of October 2016, the peace agreement as a package is put to the Colombian people through a referendum. The referendum asks the public whether they accept the peace agreements or they don't accept the peace agreements. So it was a simple yes or no vote. Only 37% of the population voted. Of that population that voted, just over half reject the peace agreement, meaning that there's an acute, albeit temporary, crisis in the peace process. That same afternoon, on the 2nd of October, there are enormous demonstrations in favour of the peace process. Mass mobilisations ensue over the following two to three weeks. Between the 2nd of October and the end of November 2016, the government of Santos and the FARC guerrilla rapidly renegotiate the key points that the No campaign had been opposed to. At the end of November 2016, the Colombian Congress ratified the new FARC peace accord, bringing an end to Colombia's 52-year armed conflict with the FARC guerrilla. What was unprecedented about the Santos-FARC peace negotiations was the direct participation of victims of the conflict Five delegations of 12 victims each travelled to Havana to present their testimonies and their proposals for the victims' accord. This participation breathed new life into what was a flailing peace process, shaping the victims' accord around the perspectives of victims themselves. So where does this leave us today? What's the position of the FARC? And did this peace negotiation bring Colombia's armed conflict to an end? In the first six months of 2017, demobilization camps were established with the support of the United Nations Special Political Mission. These demobilization camps had the objective of carrying through a disarmament, demobilization and reintegration process with the FARC guerrilla. The FARC formally handed over all of its weapons by July 2017. 
the more complex process of demobilisation and reintegration remains ongoing, however. In September 2017, the FARC formally became a political party, named the Common Alternative Revolutionary Force. Ironically, in Spanish, the acronym remains the FARC, which has caused a degree of disaffection from Colombians wanting the FARC to disavow its history of violence. A brief word on some of the challenges that Colombia faces today. Firstly, the implementation of the peace accords. The country still faces a serious challenge in terms of implementing the highly complex and vast number of provisions encapsulated within the peace accords. A second significant challenge is the fact that the Army of National Liberation, the ELN, Colombia's second major guerrilla force, historically speaking, remains active. Intermittent negotiations have taken place over the last year with the ELN, but the group caused significant damage during the first months of 2018. The problem is that ongoing violence by the ELN could derail the fragile peace that has been achieved with the FARC thus far. A third challenge is that 2018 is an election year in Colombia. In March, congressional elections, and in May, presidential elections. Santos has already completed two presidential mandates, so will be unable to run again. The question is whether the president that is elected is predisposed to continuing the peace process and to honouring the agreements with the FARC. And secondly, whether or not that president enjoys a majority in Congress and therefore is able to rule. So that's a brief history of Colombia's internal armed conflict and the recent peace negotiations with the FARC. In later podcasts, we'll be talking to individuals involved in the conflict, but also in the peace process. I hope very much you'll join us for these later podcasts.